0: Welcome to Future Ed, the show that explores the future of education. I'm your host, Peter Croft. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Tyler Thigpen. Tyler is co-founder of The Forest School and Acton Academy, founder and executive director of the Institute for Self-Directed Learning, co-founder of Transform Learning at Harvard University, and instructor at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. In this episode, Tyler describes his experience with starting schools and explains why there is such a hunger for different models of learning. He talks about the school he runs now, which is based on the Acton Academy model started by Jeff and Laura Sandifer, and what is unique about it. Tyler talks about the Institute of Self-Directed Learning, which he co-founded, as well as the importance and challenges of measuring children's progress in new ways. He discusses some of the best technologies and models he has come across, and where to learn more about the changes that are going on. Tyler is a thought leader in the K-12 space and is involved in many changing aspects of the space. We hope you enjoy hearing Tyler's insights. Dr. Tyler Thigpen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here.
0: You've started a number of schools. How did you get involved with charter schools, and why did you start an Acton Academy, a private school?
1: Yeah, great question. Both were uh, stories of the stars aligning of sorts. For the charter school, I met a group of families south of Atlanta who valued nature, agriculture, and the environment, and they were looking for a way to create a learning model that would incorporate all three of those themes. Around the same time, I had read a really life-changing New York Times op-ed by a guy called Mark Taylor, who was the Dean of Religion at Columbia at the time. And he wrote a piece, really the most widely read op-ed, I think, of 2009, called End the University as We Know It. And in that piece, he imagined and argued for dissolving the traditional curricular silos of math, social studies, science, language arts, and instead reorganizing curriculum around real-world problems, like for example, the problem of drinking water. And he talked about the problem of drinking water in Yemen at the time, which, was, which is still an issue. And he said, what if young people attended school instead of going to math class, they went to the problem of drinking water for Yemen. And they studied that from a mathematical perspective, from an English perspective, from a historical perspective, from a scientific perspective. Uh, at least a few things would happen if learning models looked like that. One, you know, they would, gone from their mouths would be the question Um, you know, what does, what does this have to do with real life? You know, school would immediately be relevant. And two learners would be faced with addressing broad, complex, perplexing questions, and they'd have to come up with creative transdisciplinary solutions. And it would really create a learning environment that, um, uh, you know, taught 21st century skills. And so when I met this group of people, uh, and by the way, Liz Bennington, who was the president, uh, excuse me, Liz Coleman, who was the president of Bennington College at that time gave a similar TED Talk and she called it reorganizing the curriculum around real world issues in her TED Talk. Um, And I just became convinced that this would be one of the most engaging ways, most inspiring ways to uh, encourage young people about learning uh, because historically in, in the United States, over time, children grow less and less engaged less and less interested in school because they see that it lacks relevance um, and because it's, uh, it's, it's teaching them low uh, order thinking skills. And so I saw this as a solution when I met this group of uh, families south of Atlanta who wanted to start a school around these three, uh, you know, diverse, complex themes of nature and agriculture, and the environment. I thought, wow, what, what a great opportunity to design a learning environment that was transdisciplinary, that was real world that was nature focused. And so we, we worked to design a school where students study outside half the day and they learn math in nature and science in nature and English and history in nature. And, uh, we found they were engaged. We found that they, uh, there were fewer disciplinary issues. Uh, we hypothesized because they were outside more and, um, and, and we, uh, thank God we were able to create a sort of, uh, uh, a community of raving fans, and the parents really have been the, the heartbeat of that school. In terms of the Acton Peter, uh, I, in my work with Transcend and my research at Harvard, uh, studying models, future learning models, and helping design uh, models of the future, I came across Jeff and Laura Sandifer uh, in their video and their and their learning model Acton. And when I heard Jeff and Laura say on their video, "We start from the belief." that every child is a genius and can change the world, I thought, oh, I believe that. I've actually experienced that. I've worked with young people long enough to have seen them design a pocket park for a Whole Foods outside of Atlanta or build a hydroponic garden for a nursing home you know, in Atlanta or design, work with the city of Sandy Springs to design a, a MARTA station uh, in the city of Atlanta, even to fund and, and build and launch a, a, an orphanage in Peru. Um, and so I'm, I'm someone who can't be convinced that young people are to be waiting for life's next steps. They're ready now. Uh, they have a ton to offer. And so as soon as I heard Jeff and Laura share their core belief, I thought, well, teach me about this learning model. I'd love to know more. And the more I got to know, the more inspired I became. And uh, my uh, I was always looking for a school for my children. I have four children. And the charter school that I started only went up to grade eight. And so I was always looking for a high school. And when I connected with some community developers here south of Atlanta, building a new neighborhood called Pinewood Forest right outside of Pinewood Atlanta Studios, which is the, the second largest movie studios in the United States um, and the largest outside of California, uh, this sort of the stars aligned. And the, the community leaders here were looking for a forward thinking, uh, whole child centered school. Um, that would empower a diverse community of families. And I was looking to start a school for for my children and to help the community out. And so, as I said, the stars aligned and, and we we launched an Acton.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the Acton Academy model? What is different about it? How does it work? And what are the unique benefits to it?
1: The Acton Academy model is different in so many ways. And it's really a delightful group of Parent entrepreneurs who are starting Acton's all around the world. One of the things that is unique about it is the network of parent entrepreneurs who are collaborating together, who have invested interest because uh, in almost every case their children are attending the school, so they have lots of skin in the game. They uh, at Acton, beyond starting from the belief that every child is a genius and can change the world, the mission of the school is different than the mission of traditional schools. You know, in the in The industrial age model of schooling, you know, the mission is more or less, even if it's not explicit, it's something like if you can learn math, science, social studies, language arts, and achieve some level of socialization, then you'll be ready for life's next steps. But the mission at Acton is each person who enters our doors will find a calling that will change the world. And I think that's resonating, especially with families in the United States now. Uh, I'm familiar with a Gallup poll recently where, you know, over half of parents self reported that helping their children find and pursue their own purpose in life, their own thriving and flourishing was among the most important things to them as parents in 2020. And so Acton is a model that's designed to help young people build purpose-seeking skills, help them learn how to learn, help them learn how to be great people, help them learn how to do amazing marketplace skills, and help them learn how to live together. It's a learner-driven environment. Some people would call that. Uh, self-directed learning. And what that means is the staff are not teachers who are explaining things to students all the time or giving them rules to follow. Instead, they're creating and designing learning challenges for students to potentially take up, and but they may or may not. And the guides, as we call them instead of teachers, uh, the guides are designing incentives. Some of them are extrinsic, some of them are intrinsic motivators, some of them are group some of their individual motivators, but they're trying to design incentives to help inspire young people to shoulder the responsibility for their own learning. And so learners are really on their own hero's journey. They're on their own path. And they each day set their own goals. And they, at the end of the day, report progress on those goals and share that back out with their peers that they call a running partner, as well as their parents and their guides. They take on real world projects that are called Quests, they have a lot of choice and over the course of their day, they can choose to work on whatever they wanna work on, when they wanna work on it, how they wanna work on it, where they wanna work on it. And um, they can go as fast or as slow as they need to. And because there is no such thing in our minds as, as average, as uh, Harvard professor Todd Rose so brilliantly explains through his research. And so we find a number of learners uh, go slow uh, than the average pace. And uh, most, actually, we find go fast um, than, the, than the traditional pace of schooling, because uh, it's theorized that they uh, aren't having to wait on the teacher who's uh, traditionally trying to make sure everyone is on the same page, um, that they can sort of go at their own pace. And, uh, and so it's a self-paced, self-taught uh, learning environment.
0: I believe you're about to start your third year. What have been some of the biggest challenges you have faced so far?
1: For our third year, the biggest challenges that we've faced since founding have been, first of all, making sure that I and we as a team communicate very clearly with our parents the difference between a guide and a teacher. And it's it's a critical difference that in many ways helps define the school because in a traditional industrial age model, you know, parents are expecting for their children to be explained things and at an acton, and at our school the force, school well, that's that's not how it works um, instead our guides view the uh, learning environment as we are able to manage the quality of learning through multiple different channels thanks to the internet in an information age and if you think about how we peter learn as adults you know when we come across something we don't know you know we don't have a teacher to tell us we usually do one of three things. Number one, we'll tap our network and we'll find somebody to teach us the thing. Or number two, we'll do some research. I know I usually go to YouTube and pull up about 10 videos and usually three of them are relevant and one of them usually teaches me the thing. Or I'll pull up a book um, and learn the thing. So research is the second way we go about teaching ourselves. And then the third way is just good old-fashioned trial and error, you know, the scientific method, trying something out, failing, learning from our failure, trying something out, succeeding, learning from our successes. and It's been a real journey in helping parents understand that's how learning for young people takes place at the Forest School. We believe that even the youngest learners do not need a teacher. In fact, they can learn if rightly inspired and if rightly supported and if rightly incentivized and if rightly held accountable, they can teach themselves by finding a teacher, finding someone who can teach them the thing. And usually that's a peer. And there are some studies in the education field that suggest in some context, peer-to-peer learning is even more powerful than adults who student learning. But the peer-to-peer learning at our school is just incredible. And they speak the same language and they teach one another incredible things. And then, of course, them having access to not just the internet and YouTube and Google, but as well, the latest in e-learning, gamified, responsive and adaptive platforms that are really fantastic. And, uh, you know, they can learn a ton from being online. Of course, we have a library with books. And then, of course, trial and error, we give them a chance to, to try out, you know, new things. And so uh, I've learned over the years, Peter, in founding the school, how to get better at talking to our parents about the difference between a guide and a teacher. But that was certainly one of the early challenges that we faced. And I would say the second biggest one, Peter, is we are an intentionally diverse learning environment. And I underestimated the amount of work that I needed to do in South Atlanta to ensure that I broadened the pipeline for families of color and low-income families at our school. If I just stuck to our status quo approach for admissions, we would be a fairly heterogeneous environment that's primarily middle or upper class and largely white. But we actually believe that learning is better in a diverse environment. And we want to bring together families from across lines of difference. And we feel like that's crucial for 2020. And so uh, in order to do that and expand the pipeline for families of color um, and for low-income families in our area to consider our school, I've had to learn, number one, how to talk about the school differently. Number two, how to connect with leaders of social institutions here in our city in order to make connections with prospective families. And then number three, find ways to build trust with new communities so that they would consider us as a legitimate option. And then I would say fourthly, from a business model standpoint to explore unique financial models, including sliding scale tuition in order to accommodate um, you know, a more economically diverse set of families as well. So that's been a great learning for us. and We've made lots of gains and thankfully going into our third year, uh, we're more diverse than ever. We'll have 42% families of color at the school, um, which is actually more diverse than our surrounding area. And then Uh, over 30% of our learners will be on scholarships. So we have uh, economic, racial, religious school background, age and gender diversity, all six of those we're trying to max out um, at our school. And uh, because again, and and, and especially in this upcoming year, Peter, um, in an election year here in the United States, uh, our theme is how might we learn and love across lines of difference? And I'm very excited for us as a community, a diverse community, intentionally diverse community, to learn how to love and support one another in that context and to help our young people find and pursue their passion and, and, and purpose in life.
0: What have been some of the greatest encouragements that you've come across so far since you started the school?
1: Well, hands down, some of the greatest encouragements that we've gotten so far are moments where young learners will, for the first time, shoulder the responsibility for their own learning. There are a number of students that come to us from homeschooled environments who are used to independent learning. And in some ways, they're models in our school of what it looks like to independent learning. But if you've been in the industrial age model of schooling and you transition to the forest school, it can be a challenge because they're used to being in an environment where they're following rules they didn't make and they're having to listen to explanations of questions that they didn't ask. And when you've been in that environment for long enough, something... Some some curiosity dies inside of you, to be honest. And it takes a while for that curiosity to be activated and come alive again. And among our Acton network, anecdotally, we say that for every year that a learner has been in a traditional industrial age model learning environment, it takes about a month for learners to kind of get over that. And that's come true for us. So I've had sophomores in high school who've been in traditional industrial age model age schooling for 10 years. And, and they've struggled in our learning environment for 10 months, but then something happens. If they're rightly motivi- motivated, rightly incentivized, they see models of other learners who've shouldered the responsibility for their own learning. If they're continually given at-bats or opportunities to take on new design challenges and learning challenges by our guides, then eventually, and if they reflect deeply on their own purpose and interests and they set their own goals, then eventually we see them transition from waiting on someone to tell them what to do and instead think for themselves. There's one story in particular of this middle school girl uh, who's a a friend and their families are friends. And she uh, sent me an email, me and her guide a few months ago. And she said, Tyler, I, I have a problem. I'm not learning as well as I could be through this one online platform. And it's very frustrating. And I have an idea. I have a solution for another way forward. This works much better for me. Can we meet? And I was so thrilled to receive that email because it was evidence of the fact that she was owning her own learning in a way that was next level. And so we met with her and we kind of riffed with her for about an hour on how she was going to approach her own learning goals and her own learning methodologies. And it was brilliant what she came up with. We authorized it, and uh, not that she needed that authorization. I think she would have done it without us, to be honest. And she she took it, and she's been soaring ever since. So moments like that are, are have been the most encouraging things.
0: You started the Institute of Self-Directed Learning recently. Why did you do that? What are some of the goals, and what are you hoping to achieve through that?
1: Yes, we launched the Institute for Self-Directed Learning recently, Peter, so that we can uh, really, um, do a number of things. Number one, we want to learn at the fourth school, you know, because we're a learner driven self-directed model, you know, there's not a lot of great examples out there in, in the world really that are, uh, there are some, and we've taken inspiration from them and I'm sure there are others we're not aware of, but there's not, there's not many. Um, and so we need to learn. And so we want to create a hub. We want to create a hub of resources of exemplars, of, of research studies of what else, what all is out there, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and we feel that we are well positioned to convene thoughts, ideas, people, organizations, individuals, researchers, leaders, educators around you know this notion of self-directed learning, and so that again, that will benefit our families, that will benefit our learners, that will benefit our staff. but then also, we have learned a lot about school redesign and transitioning learning environments from industrial age model learning environments to what we would call transformational, more holistic learner environments that are designed to cultivate a much broader, more holistic set of learner outcomes, not just academics, but also social emotional factors and transferable skills and global competencies. And that design process, whether you're starting a new learning model or whether you're transitioning away from an old one to a more future present learner model, That is a very difficult, very complex, arduous process. And so the Institute, with the Institute, we feel we're well positioned to help leaders, to help educators navigate that arduous innovation journey of transitioning their learning environment or starting a new one. But especially when leaders and educators are committed to creating, empowering learning environments. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. You might describe what's happened in uh, in our nation as a result of the industrial age model of schools is an epidemic of dependent learners. You know, when in March of 2020, when COVID hit and learning went largely remotely, we saw very clearly whether or not a student in the K-12 sector was dependent or whether they were an independent self-directed learner. And if they were dependent, it's because by and large, They've been practicing dependent learning styles and learning methodologies in their industrial age model of school for years. But if they've been in a learning environment that's inspired them to shoulder the responsibility of their own learning, then in, during COVID, we saw evidence of the fact that they would set their own goals, that they would make their own agenda, that they would pursue uh, you know, their own mentoring, coaching, teaching, research trial and error scientific methods, you know, in order to learn, you know, on their on their own. And so with the Institute, uh, we're excited. Uh, we're, we've already got a few projects going um, and all of our partners are committed to um, designing learning environments that are designed to intentionally graduate independent self-directed learners. And we, we we're excited about playing in that space. Um, we're working right now, Peter, on the final, uh, crossing of T's and dotting of I's of what will be a landscape analysis of self directed learning around the world in the education field and in developmental theory. We'll be sharing that open source very soon. We're working on a theory of change for our institute and a business model that will make us sustainable and not reliant upon philanthropy uh, moving forward. But we hope to partner with leaders and educators to continue designing empowering learning environments. And I think, especially, Peter, for people in our country uh, who are. Uh, historically considered to be a part of marginalized people groups who are currently living and existing in learning environments where their children are you know being told what to do every day and they are being asked to follow rules that they didn't make and they're being asked to listen to explanations of questions that they didn't ask you know and they're when when they graduate from those environments, they're good at those things in a broken and unjust society. I think we see self-directed learning as the future of learning, because we feel it's going to empower traditionally marginalized people groups um, in our country to, to think for themselves, to win their futures, and to pursue their passion and purpose.
0: Are there any other models of schooling that already exist that you also look up to that are out there?
1: Yes, there are many models uh, I've seen that I appreciate. Any, any model, Peter, uh, that I've seen, whether it's a traditional district school or a charter school model, or a private school model, or even a homeschool model that is designed to cultivate a much more holistic set of learner outcomes. Uh, I appreciate that and because that's hard to do. And, and in my research and experience, what i found is that there are certain conditions that have to be in place for a learning environment like that to exist, to come about, to grow, to take root, um, and, to, and to thrive. And that those conditions are not haphazardly stumbled upon But they're cultivated. They're molded over time by teams of people who care deeply about um, about learning environments. And so, you know, I think of uh, in the traditional district uh, sector. You know, I think of Edgecombe, uh, a rural district in North Carolina. I think of Spring Branch, Texas, a a district in 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 Texas. These are examples of of uh, forward-thinking public school districts who have launched their own schools within schools, their own micro schools based on purpose finding skills and real world problem solving and place-based education. And they've taken that morsel of an innovation and spread it throughout their district, or they are currently endeavoring to spread it throughout their district. Um, From a charter standpoint, uh, I am uh, obviously inspired by the Chattahoochee Hills charter school and that that community that continues to, to, to live on, Um, you know, high tech high, Design Thirty Nine, um, Design Tech High in California as well, are um, examples of school charter schools. Uh, B- Building Twenty One in Philadelphia, again, these are schools intentionally designed, um, you know, to cultivate a, a, a broad set of learner outcomes. And um, you know, from an independent school standpoint, uh, you know, Sudbury Valley is obviously a, a seminal, um, you know, lighthouse when it comes to learner driven. Uh, you know, self-directed learning environments. And we take, uh, you know, a lot of uh, inspiration from schools like that. But uh, Nouveau Studios in Massachusetts is uh, inspiring for us. And um, I used to work at Mount Vernon Presbyterian School in in North Atlanta that's based on design thinking. And that is certainly an inspiring school model. And uh, as is, um, uh, uh, yeah, those are some examples, I think.
0: You mentioned some of these other non-traditional learner outcomes. Should they be measured? And if so, how do you do that?
1: Peter, you've asked one of the most perplexing questions, I think, for the education field in in 2020, which is uh, how do you go about measuring some of these, uh, you know, um, non-academic is a tricky way to describe them um uh, but uh, some of these learner outcomes that maybe fit under other categories such as global competencies or transferable skills um and i would say depending on the uh, the learner outcome the extent to which there are existing compelling measures you know of these learner outcomes varies uh, based on how long researchers have been looking into them um and, and the level of confidence that we have as researchers and as educators about measuring some of these things also varies tremendously. And so even if we care about them and want to cultivate them, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, it's, 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 tough to, it's tough to measure. So, you know, an example would be, and I'll just give a few examples. You know, one would be, um, you know, would be purpose. Uh, you know, this is a social, arguably a social and emotional learner outcome. And how exactly do you measure someone's purpose in life? And of course, there's self-reporting studies, self-assessments that one can do. And, you know, another way of thinking about it is trying to help a learner reflect on their own purpose and capture that purpose, um, you know, in a sentence and live into it and set goals by it and reflect on it over time and iterate it over time. And so, you know, growth in that learner outcome is the number of iterations and, and, uh, you know, over time or growth in that learner outcome is evidence of the learner living into it in concrete, tangible ways, but that's hard to measure. That's hard to visualize. It's hard to report. It's hard to monitor progress. You know, I think about social capital. Um, thankfully, there's, there's been more research done on social capital. I think about, for example, researchers think about the difference between, and by social capital, Peter, I mean the practical trust and the practical help that emerges from trust-built, caring relationships. Um, this is a privilege I know I had growing up as a child, um, but that some children in our country have less than now um, because they don't have that practical help as a result of the relationships that they that they have. And so researchers have nuanced, you know, how they might measure social capital, and they've split it up into three different categories. You know, one is um, bonding social capital, one is bridging, and one is linking. Bonding is when the extent and the number and the depth of relationships that young people have with people who are like them. Um, maybe similar race, similar economic status, similar worldview. Bridging social capital is the extent and the depth, the quantity of relationships that young people have with people who are, who are different than them in some important ways. Um, and then lastly, linking social capital, which is the depth, the breadth, and the uh, quantity of relationships that young people have with people who are in power, with people who can get them jobs, who can uh, write a recommendation for them, who can make a referral, um, who can make a con- another connection for them. And so I've been working, we've been working at the Forest School with a, a few other organizations to, um, and universities to consider how we might meaningfully measure uh, learners' social capital over time. It's definitely worth, you know, measuring these things because we care deeply about them. And, and if we do care about them, we do believe they should be measured. But we want to hold the measurements lightly. We don't want to become subverse, uh, uh, subject to the measurements. and And we want to uh, we want to contribute to the the endeavors of researchers who are trying to figure out the best ways to to measure these things. I mean, even the way we measure academic growth, you know, in uh, longitudinal, in absolute and comparative terms, uh, you know, through tests, uh, it's helpful, but it's it's not everything, and it's imperfect. Um, and so, you know, holding those assessments lightly, I think, is very important, but striving to find the best measure and working with researchers and practitioners. Um, you know, to to discover, uh, you know, ways that really connect, I think is important, ongoing work.
0: On that note, what is your attitude towards standardized tests?
1: So my, my attitude towards standardized tests is, I think it depends on the test. If it's a test, and I, I wrote a piece about this in the Washington Post a number of years ago, where uh, one of our national tests here in the United States uh, uh, requires that young people um, memorize, you know, certain facts about bears hibernating in the winter, what they do and don't eat and for what reasons. And I sort of pose the question, like, is this actually something that we want, you know, eighth graders to, to be spending their energy on in an information age, like memorizing this? Uh, or is there a set of higher level, higher critical thinking skills more complex problem solving that we would actually want them to be spending their time on. I remember, Peter, if I recall, Denmark was the first nation in our world to require that K-12 students use the internet when taking standardized tests. And so you can imagine what kinds of questions were and were not on those tests. They were not asking simple multiple choice questions of like, hey, what is the capital of You know, our neighboring country. But instead, given this evidence, you know, what would you recommend that we do in this situation? And they can use the internet to answer that. Similarly, I think a really fantastic standardized test that exists right now in the world is called the College Work and Readiness Assessment, created by the Council for Aid to Education based out of New York. And at the time, we were the first high school in the state of Georgia to administer that test. And it's really a fascinating test. And I know it's really dorky of me to say that I like a test as much as I do, but I really like this test, Peter. And the way that it works is a learner shows up and they're given their laptop and they are given seven to 10 primary source documents, maybe a bar graph, maybe a journal article, maybe a newspaper article, maybe a YouTube video, maybe a scatter plot, maybe a letter. And they're also given a real-world role, and they're given three writing prompts. And then based on the evidence that they have in front of them, some of which has bias, some of which has extraneous information, but then based on the evidence, they have to make a case. There's no clear right or wrong answer to the questions that are being asked, and they have to base their decision on the mixed evidence that they have before them. You know, Peter, when I think about the, the work that you and I have to do and we help the, your, your listeners have to do as adults, you know, we, we are navigating a mixed set of evidence, some of which has bias, some of which has extraneous information. And it's requiring us to, in a season of uncertainty, in an environment where there is no clear right or wrong answer, to make a decision, to move forward, to make a plan based on evidence. And I think if we give our young people practice at that kind of a thing from a young age with that kind of a standardized test, I think that's great practice, you know. The way I like to think about it Peter is if you when you give a district or a system a standardized test, inevitably in that system the teachers, the leaders are going to give young people practice at whatever that performance task is going to be for that standardized test. And so I think the question to ask before you say yes to a standardized test is, do we want our young people practicing the things they're going to be practicing that this uh, standardized test, test asks of them?
0: You talk a lot about self-directed learning. What then is your attitude towards one-on-one tutoring?
1: Great question, Peter. And I would say in a learner-driven environment or a self-directed learning environment, this Especially with parents and educators, this can be a a controversial subject regarding tutoring. In reality, tutoring can be, in some contexts, in my experience, a real help. And also, and maybe in most, it can be a real crutch for young people. And I'll start with the crutch. You know, when in a in a learner-driven environment, when the responsibility is on the student to shoulder the responsibility for their own learning that's hard work. You know, A lot of learners who transition to, to those learning, learning environments at first, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Oh, it's on me now? Oh, no, no. I'd rather you just tell me. I'd rather you just explain it to me because that's actually easier and requires less of me. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some learners, a small subset of learners who when you give them the responsibility for their own learning, they just take off and they've been waiting for you to give that to them and they say, thank God, and they take off. Um, But most learners, in my experience, actually, are are used to being spoon fed and are hungry for that from the industrial age model. And a tutor is uh, in is a way for them to be spoon fed. And for a lot of learners, if they are in a self-directed learning environment and they know they have the option to tutor, uh, whether it's in or out of school they will take advantage of that. And again, it's because we're human, you know, and we will we will test and push the boundaries and see what's possible. And sometimes, and I too, we'll be tempted to take the easy way out. But if as adults, you know, we as caring adults, we come around this young person and we say, hey, you got this. You can do this. You can learn uh, on your own. You can pursue your own learning goals. You can create your own learning environment. You can find your own teacher. You can do the research and learn the thing as hard as it is, you can trial and error this thing and learn it. And we're not going to explain it to you. Then usually um, they are, in my experience, they are able to do that. That having been said, there absolutely are cases where because of trauma uh, in a student's life, uh, or you know, in the past, or in their current, sadly, home life, or because of learning challenges um, that they exist, that in some instances, I have seen stories where uh, examples where learners have exhausted um, their efforts to try and find their own teacher, to try and do the research online or to trial and error, and they just need a little help getting unstuck. And in those instances, I think a tutor makes sense. But um, most, in my experience, Peter, anecdotally, most of the time it takes a long time for learners to get there, um, and, uh, and, and a tutor is not, is not necessary.
0: What are some of the best innovations you've seen in learning in terms of technology? And is there anything coming that we should look out for?
1: Interesting question, Peter. Some of the best innovations in technology. At the moment, I am excited about platforms that help young people uh, reflect deeply on their purpose and build purpose-seeking skills and connect their academic learning at school, their social and emotional learning at school, their project-based learning at school to their purpose. And so any platform that's being created now that uh, has that as its heart um, and mission is, is very exciting to me. I think the. In, in addition to that, all of the emergent e-learning, gamified, responsive, and adaptive Programs, You know, with Khan Academy being, you know, first and foremost, a uh, an exciting, imperfect, but yet world class example of of what the future of learning can look like, you know, online, uh, you know, even from the younger ages, having really exciting, uh, responsive and adaptive platforms like Lexia Core 5 and Zern and No Red Ink. And many, many others uh, that are, um, you know, uh, that are really cr- allowing guides. You know, one of the things I'll mention, Peter, uh, that's that's we piloted last year is a mirror learning. Uh, it's the world's first artificial intelligence teacher of reading and literacy to young people, grades kindergarten through three. And we were a handful of schools that piloted this, and really with great uh, Success, and so we're going to be implementing it, um, you know, fully this next year. But it's really fascinating to watch, Peter. It's our learners will uh, open up their laptop, and then they'll see Amira, and Amira will say, "Hey there, let's do some reading today." And Amira will say, "Can you read this?" And will she'll throw up some words, and the learner will begin to read it. And first, Amira will sort of assess where they're at, and if they get stuck on a word, or let's say when they get stuck on a word, Amira will pause and say, "Do you know what that word is?" And talk to the learner and the learner will respond and Amira will say the word, why don't you repeat after me, turtle. And then the learner will repeat after Amira, this avatar, and uh, you know say turtle. And she'll say, great job. Now you try it. And then they'll say it on their own. And then Amira over time will provide for teachers and for parents a dashboard of data on how the learner is doing from a comprehension standpoint, from a fluency standpoint from, uh, from a, just to a re- give them a lot of different angles of reading. And, and then based on their level, Amira will, this platform, provide a number of practice reading activities that they can do over the course of the week. And so right now, our learners, grades K through three, spend about an hour a week on this platform, usually 20 minutes, three times a week. And it's not the only way that we teach reading in our school, but you can just imagine. I mean, this really amplifies the work that our guides and that other teachers can do. And it extends uh, what they're able to do in the classroom. And so anything that can be an extension of, um, uh, you know, of of the great work that teachers and guides do, I think is is also exciting technologically.
0: What are some of the trends that you're seeing in K-12 education? And what does the future look like?
1: Future trends that I'm seeing in K-12 education are... First and foremost, a hunger on the part of educators, leaders, parents, and learners alike to focus school on a different purpose, not just academics, but also social and emotional factors, uh, transferable skills, global competencies, and increasingly the purpose in life, young, helping young people build purpose-seeking skills. I, I definitely see that as a trend. I see self-directed learning and learner-driven models as a trend, uh, because I think parents and learners themselves are very hungry to be empowered um, and not uh, just told what to do in industrial age models, um, especially in a broken, unjust society. I see greater diversity of uh, as a future trend um, in, uh, in really every aspect. I see more anti-racist, more genuinely multicultural learning environments uh, um, across the United States being... Um, Uh, Being the way forward, Um, uh, I see as a future trend a hunger for new models and for starting new models or transitioning to to new models. Those would be some of the primary future trends that I see. And when I think about the school of the future, you know, I do, Peter, think about a uh, you know, I think about not just personalized learning pathways but I think about personalized profiles of a graduate, or another way to put that would be profile, personalized learner outcomes. So in an industrial age model of school, that's basically designed to do the same thing to and for children, um, you know, with some exceptions because kids can take electives and pursue some, you know, a few areas of interest. But in an information age where teachers can truly manage the quality of learning through multiple channels, You can imagine a school where that's graduating students who do not look the same they've taken not just their own personalized pathway um, uh, full of voice and choice but they have also chosen their own learning goals Um, and they have set their own goals and for that reason they have a they have their own unique profile of a graduate it's a truly personalized education customized to their own goals You know, when we at the Forest School, when we interview a high schooler, we ask them, by the time you're 18, do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to a two year college? Do you want to join the military? Do you want to do a gap year? Do you want to start your own business? Do you want to start your own nonprofit? Do you want to start your own job? Or do you want to start a beyond entry level job? And then we design their high school experience based on their custom goal. And I think schools in 2020, they can do that. And schools of the future, I think increasingly will do that.
0: Where do you go to? read your research and keep up with what's going on and where could our listeners go to maybe find some of those same sources?
1: Well, where I go, Peter, to stay abreast of, uh, you know, what's going on, uh, certainly social media, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, some of the thought leaders that I follow on those platforms, you know, and what they write, what they author, what they, um, uh, you know, send out, um, uh, you know, is, is truly inspirational. Uh, you know, I, I obviously I'm biased because I teach and I'm a, an academic director at the uh, University of, of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. So I look to uh, colleagues and research coming out of that, that institution, um, uh, you know, for, uh, for inspiration. Um, I think other ed schools around the, uh, the United States um, that care about the future of learning uh, are places where I look as well um, you know, I look to the work of John Meta, um, uh, you know, a friend and colleague at, at Harvard, uh, who heads up the deeper learning program there, and um, uh, you know, some of the the work he's putting out on deeper learning schools, and uh, and then I look, uh, you know, to uh, the folks that are working sort of what I would call on the bleeding edge of learning model design, you know, anyone who is, um, uh, you know, designing at the edges for uh, you know uh, for, for learners based on the uh, empathy interviews they've done with students and families to really connect with uh, and design future learning environments for the future present learner you know I look at the questions they're asking I look at the challenges they're facing I look at the solutions they're coming up with um, as a real uh, you know point of inspiration for for our work as well
0: is there a thought that you want to leave with our listeners today
1: well, Peter, I think the only thought, because I know your audience is largely entrepreneurial and I, I consider myself an entrepreneur as well, uh, be it in the social sector, you know, uh, I think this work that I've just described today is so complex and arduous and takes so many years that the importance of team, the importance of building, the importance of co founding, the importance of giving one another grace, taking a long term view, taking a spirit and disposition of perpetual beta and always taking a growth mindset, realizing that none of us have, you know, any sort of panacea um, uh, or any one answer, but it takes our collective group, our leaders, our educators, our parents, and our students and community leaders together to build long lasting, sustaining, transformational learning environments. I think we've just got to do it together. Um, And so my encouragement to, to the listeners would be, you know, who's your team and who's your community that's doing this work? And, uh, you know, and and how might they be sustained and motivated and supported in the long term?
0: Dr. Tyler Thigpen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're so welcome, Peter. Thanks for the opportunity to connect and share and uh, wish you all the best.
0: My guest today was Dr. Tyler Thickpen from The Forest School and the Institute of Self-Directed Learning and Transformed Teaching. If you want to find out more about Tyler, go to theforest.school or selfdirect.school. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends. See you next time.